1: Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Kiatum Mr. longkomer the host of this channel. And today I'm here again with Dr. Bankas Jain to talk about his second book. This is a continuation of the first podcast that we had together with his first book. Now, today uh, we are talking about his second book. And the second book is titled Science and Social Religious Revolution in India. And I think this is also another fascinating book because... Uh, It moves from the environment studies, the environmental uh, aspect of Dharma to the very uh, scientific aspect of it. So I think the shift itself is something which is very interesting. And also at the same time, the very ethnographic aspect of the work makes it valuable in that sense. So uh, let's just go and dig uh, into the contents of the book itself. And I think I'm sure the listeners will be very interested and also Uh, learn a lot from this discussion itself so let me go straight to the author himself and I I know that uh, Dr. Banga Chen have uh, introduced um, himself previously but I think for the listeners who are chipping in now can you give a brief short introduction about yourself yeah
0: thank you for inviting me again Uh, it's a pleasure to discuss my second book we already discussed my first book a few weeks back Uh, First book. Okay, my name is Pankaj Jain. I'm the head of the Department of Humanities and Languages at Flame University in Pune, India. I'm also the chair of the India Center also at Flame University Pune. Before here I was in the US for over a decade in Dallas area uh, and my PhD is from Iowa and masters from Columbia, all in the US. Uh, My specialty is Indian cultural traditions and their environmental uh, ethics, environmental issues in India, and all of those are part of my research. My, I also work on Indian films and Indian classical music and, and a little bit of, uh, of course, Jain studies and India studies also, Indology also. But my mo- most favorite or most uh, preferred topic uh, is, again, these days, environmental issues of India, climate change and so on. So we already discussed my first book uh, in our first earlier conversation, Dharma and Ecology of Hindu Communities, Sustenance and Sustainability. In that book, I we discussed the three major communities of western central part of India: uh, the Swadhyaya community, the Swadhya Parivar, the Vishnui community, and the Beal tribe, tribal communities in the border regions of Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh, and Gujarat. In my second book, for my second book, I applied for Fulbright Fellowship. That is given by the Department of State, one of the most prestigious fellowships in the fields of humanities and social sciences. I was very fortunate, privileged to receive that funding, that grant in 2012. And so in June 2012, I found myself suddenly transported from Texas to Uttarakhand, to Dehadun, and uh, almost every district of Uttarakhand, I traveled across Uttarakhand. I went to Padrinath, Kedarnath, Gangotri, and all of that, all of those trips were part of my research. The research, the, My research partner was an, an NGO called HESCO, Himalayan Environmental Studies and Conservation Organi- Organization, H-E-S-C-O. So HESCO and uh, HESCO's staff, HESCO's director, founder, Dr. Anil Joshi, they hosted me in Dehradun. Uh, where they have a large ashram there in, in the, on the outskirts of Dehradun. Dehradun is the capital of Uttarakhand, the Himalayan state of India. And with the colleagues of HESCO, with my friends of HESCO, we travelled across Uttarakhand. They, they showed me in various districts of Uttarakhand what all they've been doing for de- decades and decades. So that is the major fourth major community that I looked at after the three three communities that I covered in my first book. And after and in addition to HESCO, I also went to Punjab for the same uh, book, for the research for, for the same book. And in Punjab, also, myself, I found myself at the place where Guru Nanak, the founder of Sikhism, where he attained his enlightenment is, is a place called Sultanpur. And there, where, at Sultanpur, there is a river that's called as Kali Bay. So that was the river where he found his enlightenment, but that river was extremely polluted. And how a Sikh guru, a contemporary Sikh guru, Baba how he and his followers cleaned up the entire river is the story of the second community that I cover in my second book. So three communities in the first book, two communities in the second book. And that is the brief summary of my bio a little bit and also the summary of the second book.
1: Yeah, and I think it's quite interesting in that sense. When you talk about the second book, uh, it's like, it's not only a shift, uh, a geographical shift from one part of India to another part of India, but also it's a, it's a shift of topic, right? So how was your journey in that sense of, you know, you work on environment, now you're working on science and religion. So what got you interested uh, there? And I, I'm sure you mentioned about the fellowship that was there. So what was your journey in that sense of shifting from one area of mm-hmm. study to another area of study and also one part of the country to the another part of the same country? Right. Uh, yeah.
0: It was all it's always a great joy to you know keep discovering India. You know, we are all, especially you and me, are, are born in India, but you know, we have at least I had not been to Uttarakhand ever before I was received before I received this fellowship. So it was a sheer pleasure, sheer blessing to be able to visit all these famous places, pilgrimage places, tourist places, Masuri, Rishikesh, Dehradun, and Almora, Nani Tal, And then, of course, pilgrimage places, Badrinath, Kedana, that we all hear these names a lot. But I was born in Rajasthan, the desert state of India, where there is desert. And I had never even seen, I had not yet seen these great rivers, great pilgrimage places, Ganga, Yamuna and all that. It was a great, great uh, blessing to be able to travel across, across Himalayas. And uh, so it was not just for research, but also a kind of a personal fulfillment (laughs) that i took uh, in in these various trips and uh, it was you know lifetime memory and, and i have still friendship with my friends at hesco in uttarakhand and in punjab now coming to the topic of the research itself uh, i did not plan that i will be you know focusing on science and religion religion and science but my focus was simply environmental issues and i knew that hesco is kind of a distant child of the Chipko movement. Chipko movement is extremely, the most famous movement, the most famous environmental movement from India that started, that happened in 1970s. And led by Sundalal Bahuguna, Chandi Prasad Bhatt, Bandana Shiva, all of these, you know, big names, they, and their Himalayan partners and friends in Garhwal they succeeded in saving thousands of large indigenous trees in the Himalayas because of the efforts by Chipko movement. Chipko simply means to hug, right, to hugging, uh, the word Chipko simply means to hug, right. So as they were as all of these people and leaders were trying to save these trees in the Himalayan regions, they literally hugged these indigenous trees in the Himalayas. And that's how they could convince the government, uh, central government and state government to stop felling the indigenous trees in the Himalayas. Now there's another connection between my first book and second book. Uh, in addition to the author, that, that's me, that, that I wrote, first book and second book, there's also a philosophical connection between the two books and that, that connection is many many observers think that Chikku movement got their inspiration to hug these trees from Vishnui community, the community that I covered in my first book. Because Vishnui people also in the late, in the 18th century, uh, they literally, Amrita Devi, one of the Vishnu women and more than 300 Vishnu men, women and children literally hugged their local Khejri tree, that is how they save these trees, those trees in Rajasthan. So apparently Vishnu people also utilized the same idea, same activistic style, to literally hug the trees in the Himalayas. And that's how they saved their trees. But so Chipko movement happened in 1970s and the trees were saved, but there were many other environmental issues in the Himalayan regions and a local botany professor, Dr. Anil Joshi, who was teaching at a place called Kot Dwar in near Haridwar, Haridwar, is Haridwar, a very famous, famous place in the, in the, on the banks of Ganga, Ganges or Ganga, but Kot Dwar is a nearby town, small town, where he was a, he used to teach there, Dr. Anil Joshi, and most likely with the inspiration of Chipko movement and Sundalal Bahugada and Chandri Dr. Joshi started taking his students in the remote areas of Himalayas to see what issues they are having, all the villages are having environmental issues, how do we start planting more trees how do we stop the loss of soil how do we stop more and more floods so dr anil joshi being a botanist being a scientist in that region he he and his students started going to all these villages across their their neighboring towns and in eventually they were so inspired that dr joshi completely resigned from his government job you know in india to resign from a government job it's like a 10 year position forever right but but Dr. Joshi was so inspired that he left his job and he started this new NGO called HESCO Himalayan Environmental Studies and Conservation Organization, H E S C O. And he and his students, they are still working with Dr. Joshi. And that is the story of, so my you know, first, four, that is the first community in my second book is the story of this founding of this new NGO, how, what all they've been doing over the decades. So they started back in 1980s. Now, almost 40, 50 years, they have been working on Uh, saving the local environmental issues, working for local environmental issues. Uh, So many, many issues, many, many uh, projects they've taken. Government of India has also helped them, funded them. They they keep giving them grants from Department of Science and Technology, from Baba Atomic Research Center in Mumbai, BARC. So they have combined many, even nuclear technologies to save the Himalayan environmental resources, Uh, farming issues, uh, water issues, uh, traditional farming they have revived and then local produced fruits and vegetables that were growing in Himalayas were getting wasted because there was no proper way to connect the farmers with the markets. So HESCO became a bridge between the markets and the local farmers. So many, many things. They had. They also worked for the local pilgrimage sites such as the names that I mentioned, Badrinath, Kedarnath, Gangotri, Yamanatri. How do we uh, help the local uh, local farmers, how do we connect their produce with these large pilgrimage centers where millions of Hindus visit all these places for, you know, for, for they've been visiting these places, pilgrimage sites, temples for millennia. But local people were not getting the benefit of all these tourists and pilgrims that, pilgrims that were coming from all over India. So how do we connect the local economies, local farmers with these pilgrimage centers? All of these many, many things they've been doing for decades. That is all I covered in my research. So, so it was very interesting Jenny. So because, the, so to coming back to your question, science and religion, because the founder is a scientist, he's still with us. He has just received a major award from India, Indian government, second highest, third highest civilian award he just received, Padma Bhushan. So he's very, uh, very energetic still, and he's still working for the environment of the Himalayan region because he's a scientist, he's a botanist. So my topic became science and religion. But now, as I mentioned in my first book, that I I prefer not to use the word religion in the the Indian context, because religion has its own certain Western connotations, Abrahamic connotations and so on. The native word that we have in India, which all Indian languages have this word is dharma. So I trace the root of dharma. I try to connect dharma with science, not religion and science, but what could be different about dharma if we connect with science? Because we know that religion and science has a checkered history in the Western history in the European context, you know, many, 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 many discoverers and early scientists in Galileo and Copernicus had to face a lot of resistance from religious leaders, such as Catholic Pope. They were not in very harmonious or friendly relationship when it came to science and religion relationships in the European context in the, in the uh, centuries but in the indian context we, we know that most of the discoveries that were made uh, discovery of zero discovery of decimal point astronomical uh, discoveries such as the distance of distance between sun, uh, sun and earth and so on they were all intertwined with the religious philosophical ideas so dharma and science do not have that tense relationship that we see sometimes in science and religion in the european context so so that's that's how i developed this idea of dharma and science rather than religion and science and that is what became the major part of the, the second book and then uh, so yeah I'll stop here and I'll wait
1: for your next question. before I, uh, Yeah for and uh, so coming to this point and let's uh, discuss some of the theoretical issues here right and you have mentioned some mm-hmm. of it just now but let's just dig deeper into this one last time when we talk about uh, your first book uh, you mentioned about Dharma and you know its usage and all but then some listeners mm-hmm. might be chipping in for the part two, right? Who might mm-hmm. not have listened to the part one. Can you just yeah. uh, give a brief overview of what really Dharma is and how you understand it?
0: Yeah, dharma, uh, is, dharma is a Sanskrit word, but now it's found in all major Indian languages, all, all contemporary Indian languages, Marathi, Tamil, Telugu, Malayalam, Hindi, of course, Marathi, Gujarati, Bengali, all Indian languages have this word Dharma. Dharma comes from Sanskrit root three, which means to sustain. So Dharma inherently has this idea of sustenance and sustainability, because the root comes from to sustain. This is the f- idea that I really developed in my first book. So if Dharma already has implicitly this notion of sustaining, sustaining and sustainability, then why, you know, why don't we develop this idea of Dharma itself and see how, if, if some communities are trying to practice the Dharmic traditions, are they inherently sustainable? That is what I explored in the first three communities of, in my first book, Fathya and Vishnuis and bhils So for them, climate change or biodiversity, or to work with, to save the flora and fauna is not a, is not a special task. It is simply, if, if they can simply practice their dharma, according to the teachings and preachings that were given by their gurus and founders, they are automatic. By default, they are living very sustainable lives, what I found in my research. So, if if they are trying to protect their sacred groves, if they are trying to develop new sacred groves, they are not doing these things to save their environmental resources. They are simply practicing their dharma. And whatever benefit that happens to the environment is simply a byproduct. So, So, that is the idea of dharmic ecology, which is different from shallow ecology or deep ecology or utilitarian ecology. All of those notions are different from dharmic ecology. Dharmic ecology, the main motive is to practice dharma to practice their cultural traditions, to practice the, to live a life, according to the teachings given by their founders, their gurus, and their uh, charismatic leaders, such as uh, Guru and or Swade leader uh, or or so on. So similarly here, uh, so that is the idea of Dharma that connects the ecology pretty well. Now in the idea of Dharma and science in the second book is also very interesting because the scientist Dr. Anil Joshi is although he is a scientist, but he's also a very deeply dharmic person. So in his cottage, he has built a cottage. It is in his, in his, his HESCO camp campus on the outskirts of Deiradun, where he has a temple right beside his cottage. So he says that, that I want to do my research. I want to do my contemplation. I want to write more columns and books, but I also want to remain deeply spiritual. So he says, Chinta, chitta, and Chaitanya, the three words that he uses. Chinta means concern for the environment, concern for the society. Right that's concerned. Chintan means contemplation or meditation, or to think really deeply and self-reflectively on those issues. Chinta could be concerned. Chintan is very deeply philosophical speculations and self-reflexive thinking. So chinta, chintan, then chitta. Chitta is the uh, uh, crematorial ground. So he, he says that whoever dies in his circle, will be cremated right there next to his office. He is cremated right there next to his office. So, Chita. chitta is the crematorial grounds or where people are cremated when they die. And then Chaitanya, which is a Hindu temple, small Hindu shrine to Lord Shiva. So, all these C words, he has kept very close to his, where he lives. So, Chita. once again, chinta, Chintan, chitta, and Chaitanya. So spiritual rituals, crematorial rituals, self-reflection and concern, all of those four things are intertwined in his life, in the way he develops his work for Hesco, in the way he writes his columns, in the way he cares for the community around here, around where he lives, and the way he connects even the death with the regeneration. So whoever dies in his circles and is cremated in that, in that next to his office, there they plant a new tree. Its a recycling of the ashes of the dead person so that the cycle continues of this death and regeneration. That is the inherent idea in Hindu Hindu Buddhist and Jain spirituality Sikhism also, the idea of punarjan, the idea of rebirth, that you know soul never dies, yes body dies and physical existence disappears. but the idea that soul always takes a different shape, a different life. So as people are cremated, from their ashes, that becomes fertilizer for a new tree, and the tree grows, and the memory of the dead person, disease person lives forever. that is the you know, those are the ideas that they have tried to uh, keep propagating in their communities. That's one of the ideas that how dharma and science are intertwined in the life of Dr. Anil Joshi. Yeah. And so I, on and on, many, many more things I can keep yeah, keep, I think ask, keep talking about, but let me ask, let you wait for your question. Yeah.
1: I think you have beautifully put the idea of dharma in your second book in relation to science, um, as you have explained just now. So let's move to the another concept where, which uh, is like the word science itself, and I think the way science um, as a discipline and as a as a practice of how different people from different communities and you know different area of the world understand it uh, might be a bit different so how does how how is science understood in the uh, indian context or the, in the context uh, the people that you were studying in
0: right so uh, many many scientific practices what in the hindsight in the hindsight can be called as scientific practices were actually part of the dharmic traditions part of the cultural traditions for millennia in indian villages I'll give you some examples of from Uttarakhand. Mm-hmm. So long before Benjamin Franklin discovered the electricity, right, when he was flying the kite, uh, flying, flying a kite, and then he suddenly felt a shock. Like, and that's led to the discovery of electricity in America. And so on. we know the story, you know, the real, the real incidents. But long before all this happened in Uttarakhand, rural women were using electricity. They were harnessing the power of water, water energy, they, those water energy, they were they had because of because they are in Himalayas in in the in the mountains. There are many 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 waterfalls, some large waterfalls, small waterfalls. So they were harnessing the energy of water to run turbines. So they built small small turbines that were connected with this energy of water that was that was coming from waterfalls. As waterfalls would forcefully fall into these onto these turbines with the with these turbines they were generating electrical electricity and that power was using was being used to uh, ground to grind the uh, wheat and that was generating flour so wheat flour that was used to gen- to cook their chapatis and rotis for their you know vegetarian food that wheat flour was coming from turbines that were connected with waterfalls for millennia long before benjamin franklin discovered electricity so that's a beautiful example, I think, of you know, scientific practices intertwined with cultural practices. That's just one example I gave you. Another example I'll give you, farming, farming is a very, you know, India is called as a farming society, farming country, the majority of people are still based on, based on farming-based, uh, you know, profession farming-based practices that they're doing in their villages. So now Indian way of farming. or or traditional way of farming across the world, not just probably not just in India, but uh, traditionally how farming is done, especially in India is this, that it is never about monoculture. No farm in India traditionally would have only one crop. It's always diversity of crops. They will have some lentils, some fruits some vegetables. And because of the diversity within a small farm, the crop would sustain itself. It's kind of a symbiotic connection between different species of plants, different species of fruits and vegetables that would sustain each other. Now, this is a traditional practice that farmers were using for millennia. Only recently, science has also discovered that monoculture is a bane for soil is a bane for farming. Monoculture is now being discarded by, by many, 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 many speakers, such as Vandana Shiva and many, many people that have gone against GMO based farming, monoculture based farming that is being pushed by big corporations such as Monsanto and and others only now, you know, so with green revolution, what happened in Punjab, for example, monoculture was pushed only wheat for thousands of acres of land. Only wheat was being grown. Now, if only wheat is growing at a huge vast land, when one disease strikes at wheat, the entire crop is, is gone. But if there is if there is diversity in the farm not no one virus or no one single bacteria can devastate the entire farm because of the diversity of crops. So this diversity that we see in Indian human demographics is also was also the hallmark of Indian farming. So this is how Indian farmers were doing farming for thousands of years until monoculture came and destroyed devastated the Farms in the in the state of Punjab, which was in the in the times of Green Revolution in the 70s or so, it was called as the bread basket of India. But it, today, if you go to Punjab, the entire land is completely poisoned, and now there is a cancer train from Punjab to Rajasthan because thousands of people are sick of cancer because the soil is so polluted, so poisoned that people, even if they are, you know, getting groundwater from from soil, that, that, that even that water is completely con- contaminated. And because of those con- contaminations, the uh, cancer has spread like anything like in many, many villages of so Punjab. So that is, that is what has happened because of the green revolution in the Punjab. Thankfully, that green revolution largely was limited only to the Punjab, but many, many other states, such as, especially such as Uttarakhand, still are doing this traditional way of farming. And with HESCO's efforts, these traditional methods of farming, farming has greatly revived so they worked with local uh, scientists and dr joshi being himself being a botanist they came up with different species of weeds and wheat and other crops that could help regenerate the soil in the himalayan regions so that's another way of you know combining traditional cultural practices with modern scientific practices again dr joshi being a scientist himself so that is how he revived the traditional farming practices in Uttarakhand. And again, many, many more things I can keep
1: talking about. Yeah, and I think that's quite well explained in that sense of how the idea of science has been understood uh, in the Indian context. Now, uh, you have also mentioned about the dichotomy between science and religion, where in the Western world, there's this dichotomy and, and uh, uh, then the, there's always attention between science and religion. But in Indian context, the uh, situation is a bit different. So, uh, how is the situation different in terms of uh, trying to understand science and religion in the Indian context? And how is it different from the Western context as such? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, like I was explaining already, I gave some examples, right? That farming practices, uh, the idea of uh, combining spirituality and with scientific thinking that happens around where he lives, right? And uh, I will give you one more example. So, in, in India, water is a huge deal. So, now what they did, Hesco people, what they have done is, they have taken help from nuclear scientists to connect the local uh, the water that is uh, that is uh, at the lower altitudes to connect that that water at the lower altitudes with the source of water that is at the higher altitude. So how do we how do we connect the higher altitude source with the local bodies? So they can compare the nuclear isotopes of water at these two places at higher altitudes and lower altitudes. So this is again, a great example of using scientific, latest scientific research that is lu- nuclear based radioactivity based uh, latest scientific tools to connect with traditional water sources. Because again, you know, modern science, so-called modern science came up with big dams, right? Wherever there are uh, big dams now in India, Bhakranangal Dam and uh, Hirakun Dam and Nagarjun Sagar Dam and, and many, many more, more huge large dams. That were, that were all first upon India with the modern science, right? But now we know that even in the US, such large dams are being decommissioned because people have realized that large dams could be extremely dangerous. If an earthquake strikes at a large dam, the whole local population will be devastated. Right? It will be a huge flood. So all these large dams are now being decommissioned in, large, uh, in, in the countries such as US. But what was the native traditional scientific technology? The tradi- local technology was to create small dams, small check dams. Not large, huge dams that are that could be really disaster for for large populations, especially for, if an earthquake strikes. So, what, so, so traditional way of was of stopping the water or saving the water was small check dams. Now, to revive the traditional technology, HESCO connected with with the nuclear scientific technology, latest technology of nuclear science of radioactivity, radioactive science that they got from Baba Atomic Research Center uh, right here in Mumbai. So they got the technology, help the local farmers, local, uh, population in Himal- Himalayan villages. And now they are able to save these water sources, uh, instead of going for large, huge dams, which are only problem, uh, which can only bring big disaster to a country, to a place such as Uttarakhand because Uttarakhand is, is at high altitude. And if, if the Terry dam, for example, if that breaks apart, uh, you know, God forbid, because of some kind of an earthquake. The the danger is that the entire population, 300 million people of of Uttar Pradesh could be completely flooded, could be completely washed off. So that is why, you know, the need of the hour is to reject the so-called modern science and modern technology and connect people with traditional scientific, traditional technologies that can help uh, better, that can help the farmers in a better way, in a more sustainable way. So these are some of the examples that how traditional technologies, traditional scientific ideas work pretty well, much better than the so-called modern science or science that comes from the Western uh, ideas of big, big dams or big industries or so, on, or so on and so
1: on. Yeah, let's move into the aspect of your ethnographic research among the works done by HESCO. And I think it's now, I mean, you have been talking about HESCO and the works that they do, yeah. but I think now it's a proper time to really Dig into Hasco. Okay, what is this really about, mm-hmm. and what do they really do uh, in that sense? And you know how did it start? It? and you know um, uh, how how is it going about, and all. I think uh, that information mm-hmm. will be really helpful. Yeah.
0: Right, right. So I only mentioned, lot, you know, many of the projects that Hasco is done. Not one project that I've not yet mentioned is their work with women. Mm-hmm. So women in uh, in traditional villages across India, women are the main, uh, you know, sort of pillar of the family that is doing everything in the family. Because male, male uh, members of the families in, especially in, in Uttarakhand and Himalayan regions, they've all moved to cities. So what are left behind are the women in the families. So women collect fodder for their animals. Women, women collect the uh, food for the children. Women do the farming also in, in Uttarakhand. So, and women also collect the, the produce that comes out of the farming. So because women were doing everything, so if there was a need to organize women, to train women to take care of their produce better, because if they don't take care of the produce better, the produce was all getting wasted. So what, what HESCO did is to organize women, to train women and to connect their produce, convert the produce raw, raw materials into such a way, so for example, if there are a lot of fruits that are being produced, that are being grown in Himalayan uh, farms. So convert those produce, uh, those fruits and vegetables into pickles, into jams and, and, and into cans and bottles, those bottles and cans can then be sold to cities. If the, if, the, if, the, if you don't convert these uh, fruits and vegetables into sellable cans and, and bottles, all the fruits and vegetables were getting wasted. So HESCO trained them to convert all these produce pretty quickly into, a into a product that can preserve can, that can preserve for months that, can, that will not be wasted and that that can also bring some some profits to the local farmers itself without the middleman without any intermediary so that's one of the major ways uh, has cooked uh, reorganized retrained trained these women other thing that i alluded in the beginning uh, i'll i'll now say a few more things about that that so these uttarakhand, uttarakhand and largely you know entire india really you know lot of pilgrimage a lot of temples right so what they did is so all the pilgrims that were visiting these temples they were getting some sacred fruit, sacred food from these temples as a blessing from the from different deities, different Hindu deities. So, what what Hesco did is instead of giving them some pieces of sugar or, or sweet meat as they're called, why not convert these produce that are being grown right there in Uttarakhand farms? Convert those produce into some kind of a sweet or some kind of a uh, candies or so on that can be given to the pilgrims. Pilgrims. So, farmers are getting benefit from the pilgrims that are coming to these hundreds of uh, Hindu temples across Uttarakhand. So, that was another way to organize the local farm, farmers, local women, local people with the local pilgrimage places, such as Reshma Devi in Himachal Pradesh, uh, in, in Jammu and Kashmir. And then also in Himachal Pradesh, they have done this work. Uh, also, of course, in Uttarakhand. So, almost all the entire Himalayan regions, they have spread their wings and, and HESCO has trained local people in the thousands uh, across Himalayas. So now wherever HESCO people have reached out, you know, you can find some water turbine that is used to generate electricity to grind their wheat into wheat flour. You will find them uh, making all these pickles and jams to take care of their produce and get the profit uh, directly. And and many, many many of these uh, traditional farming ideas saving water using nuclear isotopes technology that I, that I alluded to in the beginning. All of these projects, HESCO has led across Himalayan regions that has really benefited local economy and local ecology across Himalayas. So ecology and economy need not be enemies. By taking care of ecologies better, ecological resources better, you can also take care of the local economies better. That is the idea that Hasco has worked for, for decades and decades. That is what has helped local people tremendously so that is what i found so I, when i traveled across himalayan uttarakhand uh, villages and districts i met all these many many farmers many of the local people local women and so that is how i learned and that is what became my eth- ethnography in the book in the, in the second book
1: uh, yeah and i think the works that hasco does is very interesting in that sense of combining science and environmental concern and economy mm-hmm. in that sense and you know Uh, The whole concern, the major concern is all about helping people and not only helping people to uh, grow, to sustain, but also to look after the environment. So I think this is something which is very commendable in itself. The work, the the project itself is very commendable. Now, coming to the last aspect of uh, the the book and the project itself is about the river, Kali Bin. Yes. I hear arguments about you know Hindu regions being polluting the rivers and all of those things, but I think this is another scenario of where certain river uh, that you have talked about has been clean and become better because of a certain view about Dharma and the science itself. Mm-hmm. So I think this is an interesting aspect of how Dharma and the scientific aspect could, could go hand in hand. So can you please elaborate on this one? Yes. so uh,
0: yeah, so. This is actually connecting Sikhism with environment. So, like I said, in the beginning, Baba Shichewali is a Sikh guru. Now Sikhism itself is a new religion that started when Hinduism and Islam came together, Sikhism's founder, Guru Nanak took some ideas from Hinduism, some ideas from Islam, and that became a new guru, the fifth, uh, youngest religion of the world, fifth, largest and youngest religion of the world. As that's how they say Sikhism is. So Sikhism mostly is in Punjab. <clears throat> but also in Canada, in especially in Vancouver area, in Canada, in England, in UK, so all of these regions in the US also. So Sikhs are known for their hard work, and you can see across India, wherever Sikhs are, they're always working hard, wherever whatever profession they, they choose. So Baba Sichival uh, was very disappointed when I saw when he saw that Kali Bay, the sacred, the river that must be most sacred for Sikhs, because their founder Guru Nanak attained his enlightenment. In the inside that river, so, 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 but Gurudanak was alive about 500 years from now. There were a lot of tension between Hindus and Muslims. So disappointed with their, with this, with this tension, he took a Samadhi, he took a meditation. Uh, he started doing meditation inside the river. And when he, as he came out of the meditation, he said, there is no Hindu, there is no Islam, there is no Hindu, there is no Muslim. There is only one, fi- one ultimate truth. That is the Omkar." So, based on that idea of ek onkar, the divinity is one, final transcendental truth is one. Based on that idea, he founded a new religion, which became later on Sikhism. Sikhism literally simply means Sikh means to disciple means disciple or a spiritual di- a student. So, all the stu- all the uh, people of this new wisdom are called as Sikhs. So they have ten gurus, and Guru Danak was the first guru founder. He was the founder. So the guru where he found his enlightenment, his truth, how can that river remain so polluted and so dirty? That was the concern that Baba Sichewal had. So he could not stop himself and he literally jumped inside that river and started cleaning, the river in, by his own hands, Baba Sitchiwal. And eventually, of course, as people saw when a guru is doing this kind of a cleanup, cleanup act, Many of his followers also literally jumped into the river. They started cleaning all the weed out of the river. And today, when I went to the village Sultanpur, uh, Baba Sichewal himself invited me to sit with him, and he himself draw, uh, rode me into a into a boat, and he showed me how the river is extremely clean now and you know, absolutely clean. And the entire region is is very clean. They plant a lot of plants, a lot of trees are planted around uh, across uh, across the region. That region, wherever Baba Sichewal is and his his followers are, that region is extremely clean and green. And that is the story that I, I uh, weave into my, uh, as my second community in, in this book, in the second book.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think the story about the river and uh, all the works done yeah. by HESCO is something which is very, really interesting. And coming to the, another aspect of it is where the people, the community see a connection between themselves and the environment. I work on animism, and in animism, there mm-hmm. is a certain sense of connection between the humans and in uh, and the nature around them. And I think this is an idea which people might say that it's, uh, it's a very archaic idea, you know, of our forefathers mm-hmm. and all. But then I think this is uh, an idea which has becoming prominent nowadays uh, through scientific mm-hmm. studies and you know uh, through through the the development in uh, research work and all that. You know, the the, the sense that you have a connection with the environment and that every aspect of the reality is related in that sense is becoming more and more prominent, right, through research works and all all of those aspects. So uh, you also, in your concluding aspect of your work, you have also talked about this uh, relational aspect to the environment uh, itself. And I think, uh, I believe uh, this is uh, something which can really contribute to the the, the scientific aspect of of our research, but also at the same time, concern for the environment and as you talk about the economy and all of those aspects. So do you have anything to further add on this aspect?
0: Yeah, one more thing I will add. Uh, A few years back uh, in New Zealand, Hmm. some of the indigenous people uh, made sure that river is accorded the same rights as humans. Hmm. So, Because river is now also accorded the same right. River could be saved from further destruction from Polluting forces and industry forces in New Zealand, and following New Zealand, and also following Hesco's efforts and Dr. Anil Joshi's columns and so on, in Uttarakhand, Ganga and Yamuna, the two rivers, are also given the same rights as humans have. So rivers are also treated like human beings in Uttarakhand because of the efforts by Dr. Anil Joshi and other environmental leaders in Uttarakhand. Other major effort that Dr. Anil Joshi has led is what is called as what he calls as gross natural product or gross environmental product not just gdp not just gross domestic product he says that every year every country must also count its forests its lakes its ponds its mountains because those are also part of the national uh, national wealth in a way if we are not counting those those wealth those real wealth of the nation and if we are only counting the, what we produce in industries or what we produce in farms, we are doing. We are not really counting our resources properly. So he says GDP should be replaced with GNP, Gross Nature's Product or Gross Environmental Product. That would be the real study of a country's resources. That is another of his major uh, efforts. And thanks to his efforts, Uttarakhand, his state government, has also accepted that idea. So Uttarakhand now counts for GNP or GEP, Gross Environmental Product, not just gross domestic product. If all countries take that effort, they, that as the index of their progress, I think we can really keep an eye on our all, all countries' real wealth, real forests and mountains and lakes and water bodies and so on. Those are not counted properly. And those are sort of currently they are being siloed away in a totally different department. And gross, we focus, the government's focus only on the, only, only on the economic progress or GDP. But that's a very skewed, way of measuring a country's progress, because we are ignoring the real wealth. So that's another one of the major uh, initiatives by Dr. Anil Zushi at HESCO. And many, many more, uh, I mean, he does so many other things. Uh, but uh, for more information, I invite the audience and viewers to take a look at my book or you know, just go to the website of HESCO, hesco.in and uh, Google for uh, his efforts, effort, Dr. Anil Zushi and many, many other environmental leaders across India and across the world, they are trying their best to save whatever is left uh, you know, in, in our uh, surroundings. So we yeah. should be
1: thankful to their efforts. Yeah, I think the idea of GEP is uh, really interesting. That needs to be taken into account. And I think uh, that's a really interesting aspect of uh, the project itself, the Hasco project. So uh, now we have come to an end of the second podcast, the last podcast that we have had. So uh, Dr. Pankaj, uh, any project that you are currently working on or you're looking for to work on any new things development and also at the same time uh, if anyone wants to contact you or know more about your work and how can people reach out to you
0: oh uh, google is the best way you can google for my name pankaj jain flame university and you can easily find pankaj.jain at flame.edu.in is my email address and I'm working on a couple of articles on climate change and portrayal of nature and the environment in some of the Indian classic films, uh, by Satyajit Ray and Manasi and Ritri critics. all these maestros have wonderfully weaved in these portrayal of different uh, ish, uh, ideas around the, around the environment in their films. So that article I'm working on, other article I'm working on is, you know, different Hindi films, even mainstream films, how they have shown climate change. I'm uh, just my one of my next uh, edited volume is in press my co-edited uh, uh, encyclopedia of Hinduism is also in press as it speak so yeah all these projects are going on and it's always uh, better to keep working on next projects rather than yeah
1: you know, and I, I think a very very interesting project uh, project ahead, had and I, I'll be really interested to know more about your work and to also, I mean, get access to them and read them. And I wish you best in uh, the future projects ahead of you. And also, you, uh, you yeah, and the um, book itself, I mean, it is something which talks about, you know, cutting across disciplines of science and religion, karma, mm-hmm. yes. and, um, and economy, and all of those aspects. And I think uh, this is where the listeners should uh, chip in and, you know, uh, try to not only read the book, but also at the same time go ahead forward in trying to develop a, a sustainable way of living, especially in the Indian context where there are uh, many works to be done and mm-hmm. people are coming forward and doing a lot of works. And uh, Dr. Chen has beautifully written about it in his two, uh, two books. And I think this has been a really interesting conversation. And thank you so much, Dr. Chen thank, thank, yeah. yeah. thank you for having Take care. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.